folks, and welcome to the Sense and Theory Podcast, where we cut through the bias and extremism to find common ground that brings us together. I'm Sense. And I'm Theory. And today, we're going to talk about abortion. Oh, boy. Abortion is the practice of killing. Oh, come on, man. Murdering. Really? Eliminating. Dude. Okay, let's just go to the dictionary. Ah, here we go. Abortion. The termination of a pregnancy after, accompanied by, resulting in, or closely followed by the death of the embryo or fetus. Well, that wasn't any better, was it? Sure wasn't. The practice of abortion is about as old as the human race itself. In fact, the earliest known abortion was recorded some 3,500 years ago in 1550 BC on the Ebers Papyrus and depicted the use of a plant fiber tampon coated with a concoction that includes honey and dates. Honey, too many dates is what got you into this mess in the first place. I thought we weren't going to do that joke. I mean, we're wearing clown shoes in a minefield here, bro. We're going to lose listeners. Gotta have them first. So do Greek? Yeah, that's the spirit. Okay. For over a thousand years, people happily attempted abortions with what apparently amounts to a fruit and nut bar without much qualm or complaint. Big fan of the apricot cliff bar myself. For abortions? Whether you're climbing Kilimanjaro or it's the day after prom, Cliffs has you covered, even when you forgot to. It wasn't until the decline of Greece when we start hearing the rumblings of anti-abortion sentiment growing among the populace. Luckily, Greece gave us... A tour de force performance by John Travolta? No! Greece gave us Aristotle, who said that male souls arrived in the fetus at 40 days, females at 90 days, and non-binary souls... No, not today, devil. We're already in Afghanistan. Let's not start dipping toes into Iraq. I'm kidding. Aristotle didn't leave us his thoughts on non-binary folks. Aristotle did, however, settle the abortion debate with a compromise. As long as the fetus was aborted before the soul had arrived... You were all good in his book, and Aristotle was a pretty smart guy, yeah. Oh, yeah, brilliant. You know, he thought some animals spontaneously came into being from mud and earth, or that some people were just naturally born to be slaves. Okay! Anyway, fast forward about 500 years to 275 AD, Aristotle is not but a memory lying forgotten in a tomb. They actually found that. Found what? His tomb. In 2016, they found Aristotle's tomb. Oh, wow! Yep, sure enough, there he was, standing on the shoulders of Socrates and Plato. Zing! Anyway, fast forward 500 years to 275 AD, and we find the first written record of a moral guidebook for physicians with the Hippocratic Oath, which states... I will use treatment to help the sick according to my ability and judgment, but never with a view to injury and wrongdoing. Neither will I administer a poison to anybody when asked to do so, nor will I suggest such a course. Similarly, I will not give to a woman a pessary to cause abortion. What the hell is a pessary? That's the abortion granola bar. Ah, how could we forget? Of course, it also has doctors swear to never use the knife on a patient. Who needs knives when you have leeches? And swear to the god Apollo. What is the copay on goat sacrifices? So, if we're being honest, no one gives a shit about the Hippocratic Oath. Doctor, fentanyl, stat! Alright, well, what about religion? Surely the Bible has a take? Oddly enough, abortion isn't specifically mentioned in the Quran or the Bible, although an early Christian text forbids the practice, while the Jewish Talmud says it's okay if performed early as long as the fetus is no bigger than a stone. I've seen some pretty damn big rocks. Yeah, well, they actually clarify, does she ever abort a mountain? No, she can only abort something in the shape of a stone that can only be described as a lump. Term subject to change without notice. Batteries not included. Offer void where prohibited. Like Utah or Mississippi? Zing. 
Opinions within the many fractured facets of Christianity are about as varied as the sects themselves. Catholicism is arguably the most outspoken, saying that, aside from altar boys, human life must be respected and protected absolutely from the moment of conception, and sometimes even before conception. That's why you good Catholics feel like you're going straight to hell every time you masturbate. Oh, we're going here too, huh? But only us boys. Girls, apparently you're good to go. Ah, clown shoes, man. Really, girls? Go ahead. Yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and make a hate mail folder on Gmail. So, fast forward another 2,000 years, and for some reason, not much has changed. In the U.S., the abortion debate typically breaks down into two sides. In one corner, you've got the left, Democrats, liberals, whatever label you want to use, leaning pro-abortion. I'm almost certain they prefer pro-choice. Okay, pro-choice, believing that women should have bodily autonomy and the right to be on the receiving end of fetal termination. (laughs) Uh, sorry, abortion. Opposite them, stand the right, Republicans or conservatives who tend to fall into the anti-abortion camp citing the protection of defenseless human lives from fetal termination. Dude. I'm sorry. Abortion. You gotta stop, man. Fetal termination sounds terrible. It's it's a shit punk band at best. Let's, let's ease off the harsh terms and controversial aspects, huh? It's literally the dictionary definition theory. Well, that's not good enough for racism. Now, there are arguments ranging from if abortion should be legal at all, when it should be legal, who should decide, how should it be paid for, what methods should be allowed, how cases of rape and incest factor in. Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't really on record about abortion in the case of rape and incest. No, no, I mean, forget it. Uh, Let's, uh, uh, how about science? Well, that's easy. Science says that at conception, an embryo meets the qualifications to be a living human organism. Well, that's a pretty strong case. But it's also pretty clear that the fetus doesn't develop consciousness until around 28 weeks. Oh, so then before that, we just... But fetuses may be able to survive outside the womb as early as 22 weeks. Do you hate me? And they may feel pain at 20. Because I hate you. Uh, you don't hate me, buddy. Come on. You don't know that. <laughs> but honestly, that's that's the thing about abortion is it's it's tough. It gets people fired up and angry. Uh, it's the ultimate wedge issue in a lot of ways. And that's actually why we decided to talk about it today. Um, and we've had our laughs. We've poked our fun. But we're actually going to dive pretty deep into the topic today to try to gain some understanding and possibly find some, you know, common ground, that elusive common ground we're always talking about. No, that's, that's the thing. I mean, you know, we often talk about finding compromise and, you know, we, we look at things from a, a centrist position, sort of. But one of the first critiques, I think, that got leveled, you know, at us online was, well, what about something like abortion? Right. You know, it's, it's all well and good to say, hey, we should find a new voting method and find a way to compromise on that. But, you know, nobody's really up in arms about voting methods. You know, they should be. All of you <laughs> should be. But nobody is, you know. So abortion, it's where the rubber meets the road. So where should we start? Well, I think uh, if you're going to start, start at the beginning, right? Uh, if we take it back all the way to colonial America... We find that abortion back then was technically legal. Uh, You could absolutely get an abortion. The colonies largely followed English common law, which stated that abortion was acceptable prior to the quickening. And for those of you who don't know, the quickening is when a fetus first starts to move. And that typically occurs anywhere from 13 to 20 weeks. Right. It's uh, it's worth noting, though, that although legal, abortion was still largely practiced in secret as there were not only strong, you know, you had your social stigmas oh, yeah. and, and stuff like that, but there were laws 
regarding sex outside of wedlock, which is actually had a, that's where fornication comes okay. from. It was and the I'm crime sure, of fornication. And I'm sure if you were married and having an abortion, it was pretty socially awkward yeah. uh, to do that as well because you were supposed to well, have kids and create a nice Christian family. Yeah, bear in mind that a lot of children back then didn't, you know, never made it out of childhood. Mm. So uh, for you to, you know, somebody to propagate your name and carry on your line, you know, you needed all the kids you could get. So, yeah, for you to get an abortion in a marriage, I mean, there was, you know, whole whole lives got ruined over a woman's inability to produce a child. Why right. are you getting an abortion? <laughs> right, you know? right. So, um, but despite those stigmas, um, abortion was still a thriving industry of sorts in the early to mid 19th century, uh, in, in newspapers and, you know, local pharmacies and stuff, abortion drugs and tonics were hawked, you know, recklessly almost. And in fact, we find that the earliest abortion laws were actually regulating what went into those tonics. Cause there was a fear, you know, women were being poisoned. Right. I mean, this is, this is right up there with give her some, them. Give her and, some hemlock to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is the old school snake oils. And yeah, sure enough, that's what happened. By the 1850s though, attitudes began to shift across the country. And this was largely spurred on by Horatio Storer and the American medical associations, physicians crusade against abortion. It was okay. a big national campaign. And Storer, who is considered the father of American gynecology, it, Thank you. It, it really comes down to him. I mean, he basically came to the conclusion that personhood does not start at the, or start at the quickening, but actually starts at conception. And he was able to urge the AMA to, quote, enter into an earnest and solemn protest against abortion and even petition lawmakers to criminalize it. And that is the official stance that the American Medical Association would hold until 1967. I mean, his impact was deep. Okay. So at, at the same time that Storer was uh, engaging in his crusade, though, uh, many women were entering the workforce. So it's recorded that there were fears. Um, that that women might postpone childbirth in mm-hmm. pursuit of their of their careers and and maybe this would lead to kind of a, a you know a lower birth rate for the the white patriot uh, at the right. same time we had a, a massive influx of immigration and the same kind of fears were echoed there if our if our women are not having babies and the immigrants bring their culture over and they're having 10 20 babies yeah. um then, then this may lead to a dismantling of our of our so society of our or culture. like our values. Yeah, our no, values. I mean, think That's about right. the old stereotype of the you know the old Irish Catholic family with ten kids running around. You Precisely. Know? And, and, and actually, I thought it was funny because it's it's almost the same argument as in the beginning of the movie Idiocracy, right? It's that we're going to have all these immigrants pour into the country and just start churning out kids while good. Uh, responsible white people are just having a kid or two at a time and eventually will be overtaken. Right. It's, it's that same old fear. You know? Right. Right. Um, so there was actually a multi-pronged anti-abortion sentiment growing across the country. And it, it kind of culminated in 1869 with the Catholic church under Pope Pius IX declaring abortions at any stage of pregnancy uh, would result in, in excommunication straight up. Uh, prior to that, the Catholic Church believed that abortion was okay up until Aristotle's insolment, and that's that 40-day 40, uh, 40 period for boys and the 90-day period for girls. So right. right around that time, we also had one Anthony Comstock, and this was a country boy from Connecticut who moved to New York City and saw prostitution, pornography, loose women, just vices abound. It's New York City in you know, the late 1800s. 
Um, so he took it upon himself, uh, feeling that the moral fabric of society was at risk to form the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. Boy, that sounds like some go-getters right there. <laughs> I bet they know how to party on a Friday night. Well, it ended up kind of blending with these sentiments that were growing um, and led to what we know as the Comstock Laws. And those were successfully passed in 1873 for the purpose of suppressing of trade in circulation of obscene literature and articles of immoral use. So that prevented things like pornography, abortion materials and advertisements, uh, mm-hmm. contraceptives. So, you know, any kind of condoms, birth control, anything like that. Uh, prevented them from being sent by mail or being transported across state lines. I wonder why that is, right? (laughs) Maybe it's because the Constitution only says that the federal government can regulate things across state lines. That's absolutely right. So So actually, kudos to the Comstock Act for that, but it got worse because the states took that and ran with it. Yeah, the states uh, actually passed even more strict versions of these laws to regulate the intrastate sale of birth control, pornography, and abortion materials. And this essentially meant that advertising for abortions was considered obscene, unlawful, and would result in like a one-year jail sentence. Yeah, and so the states continued to just keep slamming home, you know, new abortion laws. And so by the time we got to the year 1900, abortion was a felony in every state, with some exceptions for pregnancies resulting from rape or incest. And I I think that's an important, you know, note to make, is that even then, even at the height of the fervor with abortion, because that's, that's kind of what it amounted to, there were still exceptions for rape and incest. That's right. That's you know? right. And we'll we'll come back to that point a couple times today. And and that was really it was a dark time, right? Because it's funny if you look at at people who have tried to gather statistics for abortions, uh, even when they were totally illegal, punishable by jail, they were still going on in a very major way. Absolutely. And and some really scary things were happening. I mean, that's where we get the coat hanger abortion, the knitting needle abortions, mm-hmm. um, unsanitary, downright dangerous practices. Um, and I don't think granola bars were really at the height of popularity then, <laughs> no. you know, we're, we're talking about some terrible stuff. Um, God, I'm, I'm, Hey, the good people at cliff bar make a fine product. And I just want to apologize for our joke earlier. today. <laughs> Thank you, cliff bar for your delicious granola bars. I'm not apologizing for anything today. <laughs> um, so then we enter Margaret Sanger and, and Margaret, Margaret Sanger saw all of this terrible stuff happening. Uh, and I think she was a nurse, so she was kind of face to face with with what was going on. Right. Um, and much like Comstock arriving in New York, decided that it was now her goal to dismantle the Comstock Act, <laughs> um, which she opposed. Actually, interestingly enough, on free speech grounds. Um, so she she decided to start her own newspaper, The Woman Rebel, to entice a court battle. And in that paper. She disseminated disseminated information about abortions, about birth control, mm-hmm. um, you know, no, just flying in the face of these anti-obscenity the laws. She coined the term birth control. That's right. Yeah, she absolutely yeah. did coin the term birth control. And and she was arrested for opening America's first birth control clinic. She even had to flee the U.S. at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, but the end result of this was that the Comstock laws started being overturned mm-hmm. um, directly due to some of her court challenges. And eventually she ended up founding what we know today as Planned Parenthood. And here is an interesting quote from her autobiography I wanted to share with you guys. Her patients were told that abortion was the wrong way. No matter how early it was performed, it was taking life. That contraception was the better way, the safer way. 
It took a little time, a little trouble, but it was well worthwhile in the long run because life had not yet begun. No, actually, I, I think that's a really interesting quote from Margaret Sanger because, you know, there's this image of her in, in popular culture, I guess, or at least in this debate that, you know, she was she's the abortion woman. You know what I'm saying? Mm. That's, that's who you think of. She helped found Planned Parenthood and whatnot. But, you know, here you see that her primary concern was birth control. And while she did not agree uh, personally with abortion, she didn't even tell her patients to do it. She still wanted people to have access to the information. Right. And I think like that is uh, that's that's noble to me, like holding that kind of position. You know what I mean? Yeah, I tend to agree. I tend to agree. So in the early 1900s, we saw, uh, you know, Margaret Sanger and this movement to kind of loosen the Comstock laws. Uh, And then throughout the late 60s up until 73, whether that's in response to the hippie movement, the counterculture growing uh, or Planned Parenthood's efforts, a general shift began taking place. And just prior to Roe versus Wade, abortion was actually legal in 20 states and illegal in 30 states. And then we reached the big enchilada itself, right? Roe v. Wade. Oh, boy. (laughs) So, in 1973, the Supreme Court issued a ruling in the now landmark case of Roe v. Wade. Uh, In this case, 21-year-old Norma McCorvey filed suit against the state of Texas under the alias of Jane Roe for the right to have an abortion. At that time, abortion was only legal in Texas in the event of rape. And so, again, we see that even prior to Roe v. Wade, there were still exceptions in the abortion laws for things like rape and incest. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, in a seven to two decision, the court ruled in favor of Roe and deemed abortion a fundamental right under the United States Constitution and thereby subjected any law attempting to restrict it to a standard of strict scrutiny. Okay, so, so it's not flat out legalizing abortion. There right. are still some standards, but uh, it's under strict scrutiny. So yeah. So there's there's uh, this judicial con- concept where there are th- like three levels of scrutiny. There's strict scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny, and I honestly forgot what the third scrutiny is. But anyway, it gets lighter as you go. Strict is the toughest, and basically it sets forth that there are there is a standard and a set of strict criteria for any law that would contravene that right if it's under strict scrutiny. So much like yelling fire in a crowded theater. Well, sort of. So, like, if if I was going to make a law that said you couldn't yell fire in a crowded theater, it's going to be under strict scrutiny, you know, in regards to the First Amendment. And and to kind of to put it in another words, uh, any law regarding the restriction of abortion must a be justified by a compelling governmental interest, b narrowly tailored to achieve a specific goal or interest, and c the least restrictive means for achieving that interest. That's what strict scrutiny means. Those laws have to meet those criteria. Uh, So in this matter, the court decided that the compelling interests for the government uh, abortion matters are protecting the mother's health and the potentiality of human life. Thus, state governments can make laws regarding abortion during the second and third trimesters, but not the first. And, And this is actually really interesting because what the court decided was that in the first trimester, um, abortion is actually less dangerous than childbirth. So there's yeah. no compelling interest for, for the government to get involved. Uh, the fetus also has not developed, uh, you know, what we largely consider to be personhood right. at this point. Whereas in the second trimester, um, where abortion starts becoming more dangerous for the woman, that the government has a compelling interest in the, in the, in the mother's health. Yeah. To ensure her protection. And, right. and by the third trimester, when a fetus actually has consciousness and is considered a person, 
um, then the government has a compelling interest in protecting the conception of life or yeah, the, yeah. the potential well, the potentiality of life is, right. what, is how they refer. Um, to. So that's, that's a pretty, that's a pretty reasonable viewpoint to me. It, it, it is. Um, it's, it's kind of how we, it's how we got to definitely how we got to the current state where we are. Whereas I think most of the controversy is around that second trimester, right? Is the question of 20 weeks or 28 weeks. Mm. Uh, can we, can we have the mother, uh, you know, have to listen to the, this information? Does she have to listen to that information? What's the manner in which it can have, you know, so all those issues are right there in that second trimester. I don't think at the end of the day, you're going to find a lot of people advocating for third trimester abortions. Like there, there's not, <laughs> there are some people not saying there isn't, but, and it's the same thing. I don't think that there's a lot of like with the first trimester, you either don't believe in abortion at all, or you're generally okay with the first trimester. Right, you know right. what I mean? There's not, it's, it's either. There or. are, it's an extreme on the other end that people are saying no abortion uh, at the moment, from the moment of conception. Right. That's right. an extreme position. It's also, like you said, it's also an extreme position to say we want 38, <laughs> 38 <laughs> yeah. week abortions, yeah, absolutely. which you're going to have a tough time selling to me. I'm just saying. Yeah, I mean, that, well, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as I mentioned in a uh, previous episode, the cornerstone of the court's ruling here was that it believed a right to privacy had been previously established in the 1965 Griswold v. Connecticut Supreme Court ruling. And that abortion fell squarely under that that right. What does that mean? Like, why does abortion have anything to do with a right to privacy? So, well, it's it's about like body autonomy and a woman's right to not have the state involved in her health choices. Ah, I see. You see, you see what I'm saying? Right. So she's having a medical procedure done, and she has the right to keep that from the government. The government has right. no business uh, between he, her and her doctor. Yeah, and and especially like if you look at Griswold. Uh, Griswold was a case where they said the state had no right to find out whether or not you were trying to buy contraceptives, whether or not uh, you chose uh, to be engaged in the act of needing contraceptives. You know what I mean? I see. So that uh, was to prevent that, uh, that carnal sin of fornication. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. <laughs> uh, to make a long story short, I'm not going to go through all the ins and outs of Griswold again, because well, we already did it. And, uh, if you want to, you can listen to episode 31 of the show at about the 22 minute mark for an in-depth look at that. But uh, the right to privacy that the Supreme Court found that abortion falls under is not mentioned anywhere in the Constitution. It was interpreted by the court to be found within the intent of the 14th Amendment. And it's that absence of an ironclad constitutional guarantee of, of seeing it clearly written in Article 2 or something that can give it a clear hard line uh, that allows all the controversy that swirls around Roe and has sort of, I think, Roe kind of is the genesis for all of this being at each other's throats on abortion. Like, I feel like the right feels like they got robbed in Roe, that, that we just made something up. And meanwhile, the left sees it as a very necessary mm. movement of progress. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So, like, all the, all the fervor and vitriol spills forth from that. Right, know? and I, I think I'd like to see a right to privacy. I'd like to see a constitutional amendment for the right to privacy. Like we talked about in that episode, I think we could uh, not only maybe uh, put Roe versus Wade on, on stable ground, but uh, we'll also solve things like all this, uh, this big data controversy that's going right. on. And, and, you know, how do you, how do you regulate how Facebook treats your data? Well, if we have a right to privacy, then they have to ask for the data. We have to give permission because we have a right to keep our 
uh, our communications, et cetera, our data private. Yeah. Um, so I'd, I'd really like to see people talking about that in the context of abortion, in the context of big data. I don't oh, care. I m- want a right to privacy. Not to mention like some of the gaps that are there with search and seizure. You know, the search and seizure, the I think it's the Fourth Amendment. It doesn't quite cover everything that law enforcement is able to do now. And a right to privacy might help us there, too. Absolutely. There's a bevy of ways, if, if well-written, that it could help us. You know, I, I strongly support that as well. Absolutely. So uh, moving on to kind of the modern picture of abortion. And since Roe vs. Wade, things have somewhat stabilized, although there's a very great stratification <laughs> yeah. um, in the laws. So uh, many states ban abortion after 20 weeks. And as you know, 40 weeks is a full-term pregnancy. Uh, Iowa, abortion is banned after six weeks or after a fetal heartbeat can be detected. Uh, many states require mandatory counseling and a waiting period. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, the argument is that uh, depression uh, for women who have had abortions is is a real thing. Um, you know, there are many reasons you, you might offer counseling. Forcing it, eh. I don't know, but some states yeah. do it. Um, some states require parental notification if the patient is under 18 and other states don't. No. Um, some states require the mother to view an ultrasound prior to getting an abortion. And I see that as like a, as kind of a guilt trip. You know, I'm, a, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really not too big on the government forcing you down that road. I think yeah. it's, uh, it's, you know, getting involved where they shouldn't. Um, some states have provisions that would automatically outlaw abortions if Roe versus Wade is overturned. And I think the only state with, with that law in the books is Mississippi, North and South Dakota and Louisiana. Right. Um, but these are states where if Roe versus Wade is overturned, abortion is immediately outlawed. Yeah. Another reason that you see so much variation, like, like you're seeing here is something that I think, uh, uh, Antonin Scalia, actually former, you know, Supreme court justice who's, who's passed on, uh, he addressed, there's a case from 92 called Planned Parenthood versus Casey that kind of refines and, and focuses down in some regards, uh, Roe versus Wade. But it basically gets to the point where the law is that the state cannot place an undue burden on a woman getting an abortion. And Hmm. Scalia said, you know, Scalia had a huge problem with that decision. Uh, The decision was uh, authored by Sandra Day O'Connor, I think Anthony Kennedy and somebody else. They were, you know, they they did the decision. Uh, But he said, what's what's an undue burden? Like, like legally, that's pretty like, nebulous. You know, he's like, he's like, what exactly constitutes an undue burden? He's like, I, I don't like this decision because at the end of the day, it's us judges sitting up here going like, do you think that's an undue burden? Uh, let's see. Uh, she's got to go and look at an ultrasound before she gets an abortion. Is that an undue burden to you? I think it's fine. No, no, it's too much for me, you know, and it's hard to like make law. So we're in this weird nebulous place in some regards because of that weird nebulous language. And we, again, need that firmer footing for abortion to stand on. Yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, look at kind of where we're at as a country with abortion. You've got crazy people screaming at the top of their lungs outside abortion clinics to uh, to women who are there already facing the hard decision to get an abortion. And and some of that stuff borders on harassment for me. You oh, know? yeah, no, Absolutely. Uh, not to mention, uh, you know, the people who actually went and bombed the abortion clinics or, you know, threatened the doctors and the nurses that staff them. It's definitely reached a pitch that's it's untenable. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's 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 swelled up to a point where 
we can't have a normal conversation because all this crap is is attached to it. Right. So when you're looking at somebody, it's not just, hey, there's somebody who has a different opinion on abortion uh, than I do. It's there's somebody who is complicit in the bombing of clinics, and oh, look over there, there's a baby killer. You know what I'm saying? Those are the, the two sides that are trying to have the conversation. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I don't think you can have a conversation while you're calling someone a baby murderer. Right. right. I mean, not only is it disingenuous, uh, in 99.99999% of cases, um, but it shuts down conversation. You know, you mm-hmm. can't insult someone and expect them to enter into a good far, good faith argument with you after that. It's right. just, it's impossible. Well, and it also, it, it, it ratchets up the stakes, right? So I think people are, are less willing to give even an inch of ground. And I think that that is by and large why we're, we're having so many of these problems is because we're we're going after issues that are almost like yeah not to say that they're not important but they're like ancillary they're secondary you know what i mean so for instance i i look out in california with the crisis pregnancy centers and it's what's happening there is is an important issue in regards to free speech and everything but i think that it's it's one of those things where the one side doesn't want to let the other side get any kind of foothold and is trying to erode that at all costs and look at where it took them. Right. So so let's look at that for a second. Um, most people listening may not know what we're talking about when we're talking about crisis pregnancy centers in California. Um, so let's back up and, and talk about what those were. This is um, largely religious organizations who are anti-abortion, mm-hmm. who are running ads in California and in, uh, in buses and in public transit and billboards that say, Scared, alone, pregnant, call this number for help. Right. Um, when these women arrive, uh, there are anti-abortion pam- pamphlets everywhere. They're using scare tactics. Um, they kind of overrepresent the side effects of abortion and highlight that, you know, death is a is a side effect, even though it's like less than one percent um, of abortions result in in these these side effects. Um, you know, they highlight the repro- the possible reproductive harm. Uh, damage to the cervix, et cetera, et cetera. They show you pictures of bloody fetuses. Um, essentially, um, they are trying to stop women from getting abortions, and they're and they're hitting them with advertisements at their at their lowest point. Yeah. So well, I, I think I think it's important to ask though, like how much of that is them advocating their position that abortion is not the best option and how much of that is them engaging in, you know, less than savory tactics. Like I have no doubt with the tone and tenor that we've just described that there are most certainly people who are doing that. Most certainly people who that's kind of what I was getting at feel like they have a vested interest in talking these young women out of an abortion for their side. It's not about so much like what's right anymore. It's about like burning the libs or burning the right. So then they're engaging in these tactics because you know, they've been told through, you know, various sources that those tactics are being used against them down the street at Planned Parenthood, which we'll go into. But, you know, I think that they're I, I don't know that that necessarily represents all of the crisis pregnancy centers and how much of it's being blown a bit out of proportion. Well, and I, and I don't care much. I mean, I feel like no matter your reasons for for being anti-abortion, you should be able to engage in. In a mission towards your views uh, without interference from the government. So, you know, it's, it's this weird thing. If they're defrauding people, say they're, if they're telling people that abortions 
uh, you know, result in a 20% death rate when it's really less than 1%. Like, I have a problem with that. You're misrepresenting the facts. If, however, you're sharing the facts in a, in a biased manner, I don't have as much of a problem with that. I mean, you can't, you know, it's free speech. If, if I want to tell you first thing up front, here are the risks rather than, you know, rather than, than, than leaving it in the small print and the fine print, like, like say Planned Parenthood would do. Right. You know, I, I don't think that it's our business to get involved. California took a very different approach with these guys and was not happy with what they were doing, received many complaints. Um, and that led them to pass the Reproductive Fact Act, which required these centers to disseminate the statement California has public programs that provide immediate, free, or low-cost access to comprehensive family planning services, including all FDA-approved methods of contraception, prenatal care, and abortion for eligible women. To determine whether you qualify, contact the county social services, and they provided required them to provide the phone number. Right. And this was challenged in the Supreme Court on First Amendment grounds mm-hmm. um, and, and overturned. And, right. and I largely agree with, with overturning that because I don't see how you can prevent someone whose mission is anti-abortion to hand over this pamphlet that says, oh, hey, but the state will give you an abortion for free. Just call this number. It's no. like it is the very well, in, antithesis in, in of, fairness, of freedom of speech. In fairness, because it's material to this case, you know, not to quibble. But they weren't required to hand over a pamphlet. It was a sign that had to be posted in the facility. Okay. So, and that was actually, you know, one of the arguments in in support of the law was that there wasn't a free speech, you know, there was no requirement for them to say or do anything, simply post the sign. I don't but think that's much different. I don't, I don't think there's a world of difference there either, yeah. But I think there was an interesting point that was raised by Justice Breyer in that decision. And Justice Breyer uh, wrote the dissent uh, in that case. And he pointed back to, once again, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And in that case, the court had ruled that it was okay to mandate that a doctor tell a patient about adoption services as part of the, as part of the informed consent procedure for an abortion. And so here's the thing. I mean, while I do find the idea of forcing you know, a, a crisis pregnancy center to promote a procedure that's inconsistent with its values and indeed the very cause for it to exist in the first place to be distasteful. I'm struggling quite a bit for why we have to lay out all the options in one case and we don't have to lay out all the options in the other. Well, I take a pretty ideologically consistent stance. I think that I think that should be overturned. Um, I don't think a doctor performing an abortion should be required to say, oh, but here there's, you know, here's there's adoption services over here. Um, to me, it's the same thing. It's like you're you're just you're guilt tripping this woman. Now she's got to consider. Oh well, maybe I should adopt. You've already you've already made the decision. You know you're there. You, everyone in the world knows about adoption. Well, it's, I, I think the question becomes: If should we require doctors? Because we okay, we regulate healthcare, right? Sure. We regulate the practice of medicine. Absolutely. Should should there be a requirement for doctors to g- give you the breadth of the knowledge to make an informed consent? A procedure, you know, yes, um, for yeah, yes, they should, yeah. but you can never cover all of them. Um, I don't do I think that when a doctor's writing a prescription, they should say, Well, there's Tylenol, there's Advil, there's aspirin, there's this generic, there's this, uh, there's it's, that. It's a there's little bit other. different. That's not a procedure. I mean, like when you're going to be cut on, when you're going to have a procedure, and you know, there's a line there, there right. there's a line there. No, I think in today's day and age. Doctor gives you a diagnosis. 
You go check on Google. You, you come back and ask them about the other treatments that you read on WebMD, mm. or you go get a second opinion from another doctor. I, yeah. Again, I don't think that you could possibly cover you know, every possible treat. What if there's treatments he hasn't heard about? Experimental treatments from, from India. Right. Um, that are new. Is he now responsible for not giving you that information? Like, right. Th- that's a very complicated place to to draw a line. And yeah. and while I do think that that we should inform people better uh, about their medical decisions, mm-hmm. um, again, it's just it's this gray area. It's I this think, line. I think what really makes this complicated is, to me, in a sense, the crisis pregnancy centers are trying to play both sides of the issue. They're trying to say, you know, they're some of them are medically licensed through the state of California and they're trying to say, Hey, we're, you know, we're this medical facility. We offer some medical services. They've got people walking around in lab coats. You know, they're going to counsel you on what the best outcome is for your, they might give you a pap smear and ultrasound. Right. And yet when it comes to a medical requirement, like we have over there because of Casey, whether you believe in that or not, you know, just set that aside for just a moment. Um, Then they want to say, Oh, but we're a religious organization. (laughs) <laughs> now, now I have no problem with them being a religious organization and that being out in the open and them not doing that, them not saying anything about abortions. That's, that's fine to me if that's what they are. But if they are going to be a medical organization, then I think that they're subject to the same rules. Now, again, should, should the doctor have to say something about adoptions in Casey? I, I don't know, man. And, well, and I, I don't see how I, I do see the hypocrisy and I see the double standard. Right. And I don't think these two opposing cases can stand for very long as right. they are. It doesn't make any sense. It's either one or the other. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, all that said, I think it, another place where we find that double standard and that hypocrisy is I think it's interesting how worried we are about what the crisis pregnancy centers are telling the young women who are coming in looking for, you know, counseling, guidance, advice, you know, what have you on their pregnancy and how anytime that that issue gets raised with Planned Parenthood, it gets brushed off, swept to the side. You know, when people say, well, I I get the impression or I get the feeling looking at the statistics and whatnot, looking at the Planned Parenthood website, that Planned Parenthood is actively pushing abortion and not representing uh, the the availability of adoption services to these women at a at a at a good level, and people just want to blow that off, right? And I think, yeah, I mean, I think that's quite the double standard when we're not worried about it for one and we're worried about it for the other. I tend to agree. Um, so let's actually let's take a minute to talk about Planned Parenthood. Well, you kind of have to. Don't <laughs> there's you? there's quite a bit of controversy surrounding Planned Parenthood, and um, you know, we figure why not air it out on the show. Um, so in their own words, Planned Parenthood is a trusted healthcare provider, an informed educator, a passionate advocate, and a global partner helping similar organizations around the world. Planned Parenthood delivers vital reproductive health care, sex education, and information to millions of women, men, and young people worldwide. Absolutely. As we as we mentioned earlier. It was founded, or rather the organizations that would turn into Planned Parenthood were founded by Margaret Sanger, who was a vocal supporter of women, you know, a woman's right to be informed about and choose the option of abortion. Although uh, she thought, as we cited, that birth control was a far better solution. Uh, she was an outspoken opponent of the Comstock laws and was actually jailed for distributing information in direct violation of a Comstock-inspired New York law. Mm-hmm. It's worth pointing out, though, that uh, Margaret was also an outspoken advocate of eugenics, 
And that's a set of beliefs and practices that aims to improve the genetic quality of the human population. And I know what you're asking. You're like, like eugenics as in Nazi? Well, yes and no. All right. Uh, Yes, the Nazis also held eugenics as a core belief of their ideology. But Sanger subscribed to a milder version of the belief that wasn't tied to race per se as much as it was to undesirable qualities, whether they be mental or physical deficiencies. There's not a whole lot of difference, but (laughs) there is a difference. Uh, you'll, You'll see people out there claiming that you know, she specifically, you know, targeted black people and wanted to do away with black people. Most of that is unfounded. It's based off this one quote taken out of context. Yeah, and that. I don't think there's much evidence to find that that Margaret Sanger was a racist. She worked with Martin Luther King. Yeah. Um, she worked with black leaders, um, granted, to bring abortion clinics. Uh, well, OK, to bring medical services yeah. um, to, to impoverished neighborhoods and black neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, and they were asking for them. That, so that does not mean that she was not paternalistic as hell. Uh, here are some quotes from Margaret Sanger. Uh, birth control itself often denounces a violation of natural law is nothing more or less than the facilitation of the process of weeding out the unfit of preventing the birth of defectives or those who will become defectives. Hmm. Sanger advocated for a stern and rigid policy of sterilization and segregation to that grade of population whose progeny is already tainted or whose inheritance is such that objectionable traits may be transmitted to offspring. And she also advocated to keep the doors of immigration closed to the entrance of certain aliens whose condition is known to be detrimental to the stamina of the race such as feeble-minded idiots, morons, insane, syphilitic, epileptic, uh, criminal, and professional prostitutes, and others in this class, barred by the immigration laws of 1924. <laughs> and, that, and that gets funny. Talk about double standards. Uh, and maybe it's not a double standard, but uh, it's definitely ironic that, you know, the Comstock laws <clears throat> in a large way were passed due to a fear of immigration breaking down society. And here we have Sanger, uh, you know, dis fighting to dismantle the Comstock laws, which with much of the same anti-immigration sentiment behind it. Like, how do we get to that place? It's really, really, really weird. It's interesting. I, you know, I don't know how much, you know, Margaret Sanger, uh, I don't know how much impact she has on Planned Parenthood now. You know, I mean, I think there are people who want to sell this narrative that Margaret Sanger being a strong proponent of eugenics kind of wove into baked into the cake, this like the strain of eugenics that it's governing Planned Parenthood somehow pollutes it's yeah, pollutes the organization today. But, but in truth, uh, Margaret Sanger was not involved in the modern Planned Parenthood organization. Right. Um, she created and was integral in the organizations that, that eventually merged and became Planned Parenthood. Yeah, I, so today, Planned Parenthood is, is very different from, from Margaret Sanger's well, vision, I think. I, I think yes and no. And I think that while I won't go so far as to say that they have like a plan to keep immigrants closed out of the country or to... <laughs> to stop the the inheritance of objectionable traits. Um, I do think that there is paternalism that governs a lot of the people who both donate and both uh, lead, uh, donate to and lead Planned Parenthood. I think there's this idea that, you know, these poor unwashed wretches don't know what's good for them. So we got to get out there and get the word that they can go get this abortion or they can, you know what I mean? Okay. And and I, I do think that that, that strain uh, runs through the organization, but I don't know if it has anything. I think it would be there whether Margaret Sanger was a part of it or not. 
Right. And and that's not to go so far as some of the crazies out here who say that Planned Parenthood is a, a giant plot to kill black babies. Um, <laughs> and they use the sticks. There are some statistics that kind of correlate with that. Um, for instance, black people make up 13 percent of the population, but account for 37 percent of abortions. So um, many more, much more representation among abortions than, than the population size. Um, according to protectingblacklife.org, 2010 census results reveal that 79% of Planned Parenthood's surgical abortion facilities are located within walking distance of African-American or Hispanic Latino neighborhoods. And and uh, Planned Parenthood has flat outright denied this right. um, and said, you know, they, they've, they've done nothing of the sort. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also read reports that this data has been verified and uh, there's yeah. not, you know, you can deny well, it all you want, but here's, here's the statistics. And that's not to say correlation is causation. Yeah. I mean, um, the census results are the census results. I think, but see, I think at the same, okay. So at the same time that I said that there's a, you know, this paternalistic streak running through Planned Parenthood, I think that this has got paternalism written all over it too, because for me to assume that just because of where the clinics are placed or advertised, that it somehow subverts a black woman's ability to determine the best course of action for her pregnancy. I, you know, to me, that's not the issue. I'm much more concerned about how Planned Parenthood conducts itself once any woman of any race or age uh, enters into the facility. And, and, you know, again, like I said, that effect, it doesn't matter who you are. You know, I'm, I'm worried about how they treat the patient once the patient arrives. Right. And, and, that's where we get into this uh, this kind of crazy area where Planned Parenthood has been accused of having uh, monetary incentive uh, behind pushing women to get abortions. Right. Uh, and it starts with video released by the Center for Medical Progress that shows Planned Parenthood employees negotiating prices for aborted fetal tissue. Uh, Planned Parenthood said the videos were heavily edited and denies any wrongdoing. Uh, quote, Planned Parenthood has never and would never profit while facilitating its patient's choice to donate fetal tissue for use in important medical research. All right. Well, here, here's the thing. All right. So the Center for Medical Progress that, that, you know, got these videos as part of like a sting operation is basically one guy who used to be a part of another organization called Live Action. And Live Action for years has been doing like sting operations on abortion clinics and, and so on and so forth. The woman who runs live action actually worked closely with James O'Keefe, a guy that we've talked about before that's famous for doing, you know, various sting videos on CNN and stuff. Right. Here's the thing. There's a lot of controversy about how much of James O'Keefe's videos have been staged, uh, what he does with editing and so on and so forth. Some of that spills over into live action. Live action has some questions about some of the things that it's done here and there, uh, as far as I can tell, a lot of it is is more hearsay. And let me kind of give you an idea of what I say hearsay. But let me let me tell you about what happened with the Center for Medical Progress's video to kind of give you an indication of where we're at. The Center for Medical Progress released their raw footage. Okay, now when the frames were analyzed, there was thirty minutes of missing film. Okay, the Center for Medical Progress says that that is bathroom breaks, waiting times, times where they flipped off the camera. Mm-hmm. Okay, on that basis, Planned Parenthood is making the claim that these videos have been heavily edited. There's stuff missing. There's context missing. Now, here's something that's interesting, and I, you know, because we can bring Russia into just about everything. <laughs> Guess who Planned Parenthood got to analyze the tapes? Who 
Fusion GPS. You don't say. You don't say. They got Fusion GPS to take a look at the tapes. And and Fusion GPS said that they were edited. Fusion GPS uh, brought in a TV producer. Um, I think they they submitted the the footage to a transcript service. And okay. That part they did blind. The transcript service did not know that Planned Parenthood was involved. Okay. Um. And anyway, they basically came back and they said we can't say exactly what was edited or how it was edited or whatever. Well, but it has been edited to an extent that it would not uh, pass for evidence in, in a court of law. Well, I'll tell you what, man, those videos, they're all in the show notes <laughs> and I've watched those videos and they're pretty disturbing. Um, I, a woman is asked, uh, I think she's a CEO of Planned Parenthood. She's, she's some, uh, some high I level think she position. Was a facility director. If it, was, yeah. There you go. Uh, asked what kind of compensation she would expect in exchange for fetal tissue. Mm-hmm. And she says she wants, get this, a Lamborghini. And the guy goes, what? Yeah. Yeah, I want a Lamborghini. There's other videos. They're negotiating prices between $50 and $100. They talk about um, how they will avoid damaging internal organs because the guy is after kidneys. Um, mm-hmm. They discuss pricing. They discuss, in fact, one of the videos, he says, well, uh, you know, well, how much do you want? She says, well, whoever makes the first off- offers at a loss. So why don't you make me an offer yeah. on fetal aborted tissue, which yeah. is, I have to say, completely against the law to sell aborted fetal tissue. Right, you right. can donate it to science, but you cannot sell it. And why can't you sell it? Well, Creating a monetary incentive at a company to push women to have an abortion is an abhorrent practice. Yeah. We do not want to incentivize people, you know, drawing women in and, and, and getting them to have abortions. I don't think it's right. I don't think most of America thinks it's right. Um, There may be a couple people and, and, and Planned Parenthood has essentially said, well, it's illegal and we don't do it. Um, But that's not the case because. We have uh, investigations that actually spawned from these videos. And in December 19th, 2017, Planned Parenthood's business partners, DV Biologics and Da Vinci Biosciences, actually pled guilty to the illegal sale of aborted fetus tissue. And this is from the LA Times. The lawsuit accused the companies of illegally selling cells from fetal brain tissue for up to $1,100 per vial from 2009 to 2015. Prosecutors said fetal tissue and cells were sold to pharmaceutical companies and academic institutions in Japan, China, Singapore, South Korea, Germany, Switzerland, Australia, the Netherlands, Canada, and the United Kingdom, authorities said. Now, also in December 2017, the DOJ began an investigation into Planned Parenthood for their behavior. And I have found nothing but silence since December 8th. 2017 there is not another peep about that case yeah well i think i think again this is sort of like the crisis pregnancy centers to me do i think that it is widespread and we're going to find it in every single planned parenthood facility that we go into no do i think it's a problem within the planned parenthood organization yes 
I think it exists. I think it absolutely exists. I well, think watching those videos, it's pretty freaking clear that it exists. Right. And I think, I, you know, exactly. Like, what what possible context did they cut around from I want a Lamborghini? There's, you no, know, there, exactly. there's no way you can watch those videos and not understand what's going on. Exactly. And, and we find, we find, when we start looking into the statistics uh, regarding uh, abortions and Planned Parenthood, we start to find interesting things. For instance, the ratio of abortions to adoptions at a Planned Parenthood, you know, uh, with Planned Parenthood is something like 82 to one. Okay. There are 82 abortions for every one adoption. If you take Planned Parenthood's contribution out of the national numbers uh, for, you know, abortions and adoptions, the ratio is something like 4.5 to one. That's astounding. Although I have to say, a lot of people who are engaging with Planned Parenthood are doing so because they know that's the path to an abortion. They are seeking so out that's, the abortion. Right. Absolutely. That's going to skew the numbers a little bit. Yeah, I'm I, not sure it skews from <laughs> four to one to 82 to one. Yeah, exactly. So I think there, there's, there are problems uh, with, with Planned Parenthood and how it presents itself. For instance, we're often told uh, you know, that Planned Parenthood is all about offering other medical services. It's not just abortion. Abortion is just this one thing that we do. We, you know, well, live action, going back to that group, they did this thing where they called 97 abortion uh, Planned Parenthood facilities. Okay. And they asked for prenatal services. 92 of them told them that they did not offer any sort of prenatal <laughs> service. And so when asked about it, uh, the the CEO of Planned Parenthood, she said, well, we never said that we offered them at every facility. And it's like- They're kind of talking out of both well, sides of the mouth Well, when it comes there. to federal funding, you're always telling us about all the wonderful medical services that you provide to everybody. That's right. You, you know, know, so- it, I, I have a hard time- with Planned Parenthood, because on one side, I believe in their mission. Right. I think we ought to get birth control in the hands of everyone that wants it. I think women ought to be able to have abortions. Um, you know, when that's up for debate, uh, I tend to think that as long as the baby's connected to you, it's part of you. If you can stomach uh, aborting your baby at 28 weeks and the mm -hmm. doctor is willing to do it, who am I to get in the way there? You know, I'm not going to. Um, but at the same time, I have a really big problem with incentivizing uh, abortions. I think right. it's I think it's predatory. It's it's disgusting. At the same time, I love the idea of of medical use of fetal tissue that gave us the the polio vaccine, right. um, stem cell research. You know, these are things that are so promising um, to the future of humanity. Uh, and I think they're valuable. Mm -hmm. Now, the way they're supposed to do it, according to the law, is the way it should be done. If if a woman wants to donate her fetus, then by all means, donate the fetus, keep the donation going. Right. But, but let's not incentivize it. Let's so not I, give away I, Lamborghinis. I, right. Exactly. So I'm not advocating. I don't think we should throw out the baby with the bathwater and you know shut down Planned Parenthood. This, that, or the other. No. I do think, however, that 500 million dollars of federal funding. Yeah, probably shouldn't be going to Planned Parenthood and probably shouldn't be going to these crisis pregnancy centers either, which no. you turned up were actually federally funded as well. Is yeah, that true? Well, that was actually one of my first thoughts was I was like, well, you know, if, if the crisis pregnancy centers aren't federally funded, maybe that's the difference. Right. Then maybe maybe the federal government doesn't. But then come to find out, yeah, they're getting funding from a lot of states, too. And I think there there actually are a lot of parallels here. Right. Because. The idea of Planned Parenthood, like you said, I'm all for, man. Like when Planned Parenthood is doing what Planned Parenthood is supposed to be doing, I think it's a force for good. Yes. Right? 
But I think it's lost its way. And I think, you know, the, the reasons that it has lost its way is, A, that profit incentive. But I also think, again, somewhere along the way, you know, it's funny. I was thinking it's, it's kind of like the Ian Malcolm quote from Jurassic Park. But somewhere along the way, they were so worried about whether or not they could, they <laughs> lost sight of whether or not they should. And, and what I mean that is, is we are to the point now where it's so important not to lose an inch to the pro-life side. Mm. that that we have to go get abortions. We have to go get abortions done. We have to advocate for abortions in any form, in any state, however it comes. You know what I mean? And so we've lost sight of like what's important, and that is the health and well-being of the mother well, and the I, fetus. I also don't think that, that introducing a profit incentive makes you pro-choice anymore. Mm. You know, if you want to say we're pro-choice, that's fine. You're giving the mother a choice. However, you are definitely pro-abortion as an organization if right. you are seeking to convince women to get an abortion. Yeah. So I don't think that you can support this behavior. And we'll see how the DOJ investigation comes down. You yeah. know, uh, maybe maybe there was no wrongdoing. Maybe there I, was a layer where they weren't I, involved. I know? have a hard time after seeing those videos <laughs> yeah. thinking that was the case. Yeah. Um, but I don't think you can call yourself pro-choice and support what Planned Parenthood is alleged to be doing here. I don't right. think you can. That makes you now pro-abortion, yeah. which is an extreme position, buddy. Absolutely. And I, I think, and again, I, I want to draw it back to the parallel because I think it is the same thing with the Crisis Pregnancy Center. In fact, in a world where Planned Parenthood may be you know, overly advocating for abortion, I'm kind of glad that there's somebody out there that's saying, hey, you know, maybe maybe you should adopt. There are, you know, I think we we found a stat. It's hard to pin it down, but there's something between six hundred thousand and two million uh, people who want to adopt children and are unable to do so. Right. And there are other things involved in that. Don't get me wrong. Like I I personally don't feel like there should be any problem with like a gay couple adopting a child. There's paperwork, red tape, all kinds of crap that are keeping kids locked in the foster system when they could be in loving homes. And I think that's, that's horseshit. Yeah. It's a tragedy. Um, but at the same time, I, I'm glad that somebody is out there saying, Hey, if you're, if you're willing to take this pregnancy to term, we can find the child loving home. You know what I'm saying? It'll, it'll be great for the child. The child will grow up, be happy, you know, and whatnot. Yeah. I absolutely think that's no, but again, they're so worried about, losing ground to Planned Parenthood that we've got to lie about what, uh, how many abortions it takes before your uterus is blown up. And, you know, we got to lie about all these other scientific facts and figures and stuff. And, and that's the thing. It kind of, it kind of makes your head spin, man. And I get to a point, you know, it's it sort of is, is, has come up today where I just don't know. I yeah. just, you know, and I think, I think with abortion, one of the things I learned this week is that if you think, you know, like abortion, if you've got a position, you're like, "Wow, this is what it is." You're full of shit. Yeah. You're full of shit. <laughs> you're not looking at the at the at the wealth of information that's available about this and that. You know, you're you're looking through blinders to some extent. Yeah. Although we did decide that there are kind of two ideologically pure yeah. and consistent points, and that is, if you believe that life begins at conception and you are a hundred percent anti-abortion at all times from the point the sperm enters the egg. Yeah. You are ideologically consistent. And on the other side, if you believe in 40 term, uh, 40 day, four, I'm sorry, 40 week abortions, yeah. um, that you are also ideologically consistent anywhere in between, you're automatically compromising because yeah. we don't know when, when life begins, you can't pin it down. We don't know when consciousness truly happens. Um, the definition of life is nebulous and a gray area. Yeah. So like, 
99% of Americans are already at a compromise on abortion. Yeah. So I don't see the need to make it an ideological death battle. Right. Right. And I think, I think that's evidence in our laws. Like, so, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, what Iowa's law was. There are actually nine states that have no restriction uh, on abortion. So you could get that 40 week abortion, whoever you are. Person if you out could there find a doctor to do it. To, yeah, I don't wants, think yeah. you will find a doctor who will right. perform a 40 week abortion. But the majority of states, 26 states, uh, their law is at 28 weeks, 26 to 28 weeks and, is where they restrict the abortion. And I'm generally an advocate for states' rights. And, and this is somewhere I think that, that it serves us very well. Right. Um, because of the gray area, because of the disagreements, because of the changing, uh, the changing science and the emotional aspect of this, and also uh, the religious implications. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you have if you have a community who who largely holds strong religious beliefs about abortion, um, you know, I think it's okay for states to make different rules and come down in different places. I also think that the federal government ought to set some guidelines. Um, that say, you know, this, this way is out of bounds and this way is out of bounds, but anywhere here between you guys can decide for yourself. I love that. I love the diversity. I think it's okay for the federal government to say that it's always okay in the event of rape and incest. If you look at everything that we laid out here today and, and, you know, look back through history, there are always been exceptions, even when it was outlawed for rape and incest. And I think, you know, recently there was a state lawmaker, I can't remember which state, uh, but they were saying that, you know, even in cases of rape and incest, no abortion. And I, I think you're a loon. Like you, yeah. you are on, you are not in you mainstream are on thought. the fringes yeah. for sure. Uh, I think what's interesting though is, you know, like you said, there's, there's only two positions that are completely ideologically consistent here. And I think that, and I would actually even question that because if you think that life starts at the moment of conception and that it is never okay to take that innocent life through abortion, then how exactly do you justify when we take innocent lives through our drone strikes, right? Mm, Collateral damage. Yeah, it's a a collateral damage and, you know, we were protecting ourselves. And But no, partner, you said it's never okay for us to take an innocent life. So there's, you know, there's still some conflict there. So I think quickly what you realize is that if we are all going to be in a society, right? Like to an extent we have to make sacrifices. And I think it's important for the person who says, um, no, I think that it's murder. Well, yeah, it's murder by this definition, but there's a caveat there, man. Like it's a little bit different. It's not a straight up, you know, somebody killing somebody else. There's some other factors at work. And I think it's important for the other side to do that, too. And they say, well, you know, this is a question of body autonomy. It is, but there's another life involved. It's not like we're talking about a Pearson, man. Right. You know, there's some other factors involved. And I think that is the beginning. That is the building block where you start to find a way forward to make that compromise. Mm. I, I tend to agree with you. Um I think it's going to be hard, especially when religion gets involved, because, yeah. you know, if we've got the Catholic Church making a decree of excommunication, right. um, you know, that's something you're not going to compromise with those people on. Right. Now the Catholic Church changes its position, so so maybe that needs to change. Um, there's all kinds of things that, that need to change here, because really, uh, like I said before, abortion is the ultimate wedge issue, mm-hmm. and and it's preventing us from making progress in other areas. Yeah. You know, I feel like we get stuck and angered um, and and no progress can be made. So 
Um, I know neither of us have really talked about in length about our own views on abortion, and I think uh, it would be fair to our listeners to kind of lay that out for them. Well, as as far as me, uh, personally, I would never want to have an abortion in a pregnancy that I'm involved with. Um, I, I absolutely think that we shouldn't be advocating for abortions. I, don't, I, I think it's something that one does when one has to. It's not mm-hmm. something that one seeks out. Um, and I definitely don't want to promote, uh, you know, which I think sometimes the, the representations that we're promoting a culture where, oh, I'll just go get an abortion are overblown. But in no way, shape or form do I want to shade that way. At the same time, I fully support a woman's right to choose. And it's because it's her business. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if it's it's grounded in my, my libertarian roots or if it's, you know, grounded in the weird conception that I have of the fetus and when it becomes a person and when it's not. You know, there's a bunch of factors that swirl around and come into play in that decision. But ultimately, I feel like I, I can't you know, tell you that you can't ever have that on the table and that, you know, only I get to decide. It's just not for me to decide. So, right. And and I largely hold the same view, um, with a few minor differences. And, um, I have had subjective experiences. I had a dream with my first child, uh, about three, four months into the pregnancy where there were these two giant wheels spinning and they had holes in them. And I felt there was a presence in one and the other side was empty and I watched them spin and spin and the holes would miss each other and they would miss each other. And finally they lined up and there was this uh, difference in pressure and the entity was sucked from one side into the other. And I, and I shot out of sleep with my hand on my, my wife's belly. And I said, she's here. I woke mm-hmm. her up. I was like, she's here. And that <laughs> stuck with me. You know, it's a subjective experience. It's a dream, whatever. But at that point, um, I chose to believe that prior to a certain point, life was not present in the fetus. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a part of me that says, you know, after that point, it's absolutely murder. And you're not going to convince me otherwise. Right. If there is life presence present in a fetus, if there's consciousness, I believe that ending that life is murder. Now, there are plenty of uh, plenty of times I believe taking a life is justified. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, self-defense, for example. Uh, perfectly justified. On the other hand, I also believe that even though consciousness is present in the fetus at a certain point, uh, that fetus is very much part of the mother and and belongs to the mother. So if I have something growing inside of me that is connected to my very organs, um, you know, should I be able to cut out my kidney? Yes. Um, I don't believe that the government or anyone else has any say over what I do with my body at the extreme ends, you know, that looks like I'm okay with, with 40 week abortions. And part of me is there's a part of me that says until that umbilical cord is cut, that is, that is her. It is, you know, it is not an individual consciousness. It's, it's, (laughs) it's this weird nebulous state, (laughs) right? Um, the, and and then, then I have this whole other part of me that's so disgusted by the idea of of vacuuming out a fetus and ripping off arms mm-hmm. um and and you know taking care not to squish the brain when you're when you're dragging it out with forceps so mm. uh, you know i have to come to this place where like 
while while my extreme view is that women should be able to essentially murder their babies even if they're fully formed and have been feeling pain um i recognize that that's not going to be societally acceptable so i don't advocate for that it's a, it's a belief that i hold yeah. um and it's one that i even struggle to hold that even disgusts yeah. me at times yeah. but i recognize that that there has to be because of the extremes in thought on either side there has to be a point where I make a reasonable stand. Right. And and to me, that reasonable stand looks a lot like 20 to 28 weeks. Yeah. Um, you know, it looks a lot like that. And, I, you know, I think we're doing it right. I think if we overturn Roe versus Wade, we're in, we're in new territory. It's, it's scary. Um, well, I, I would we've got to do that. something. I think, I think we should overturn Roe versus Wade and replace it with something that's on firm ground. That's what I think. Yes. I, I mean, I, I tend to I, agree, but how do you, how does that look when, when you're in that shaky place where, where Roe versus Wade is overturned, but there's not anything to replace it with? Oh, no, no, no. Or I'm, there's no guarantees that it, that it will actually be replaced. I'm not saying the timing looks good. I'm saying that in my perfect world, Roe versus Wade would be overturned and Congress would pass a law the next day. Fair you know enough. What I mean, like, like that, that's where it would be. You know, it's interesting. You, you brought, <laughs> you mentioned the dream and like basing your conception of like when, uh, you know, the fetus had attained consciousness and all that stuff. I think that that is every bit as valid as whatever wild ass uh, way that I'm choosing to decide when a, a, a fetus is a person. And I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to come back to it, man. I think that is true of almost everyone with this discussion. If you say abortion is simple, it's like this. This is the way it should be. You're wrong, you buddy. You are full of shit. And that's the thing is we're all kind of full of shit here. Yeah, absolutely. I think any position you take, you are you are at some point, you're going to be full of shit. Yeah. Which makes it all the more reason for us to wake up and find some compromise. How we do that, hey, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the Sense and Theory podcast, helping you find the least full of shit position since 2017. <laughs> and with that, I think we're going to kick it over to Beanzo, our fact checker extraordinaire, who's going to go over the episode with a fine-tooth comb and try to find all of the many ways we screwed up. Beans, what you got for us today? Oh, wow. <laughs> you really want me to do this? I heard y'all start an abortion episode with a comedy skit. So I've been over here on Indeed looking for another fact-checking job. Way I figure, it'll be a couple days after the episode airs before the pro-choice and pro-life lobbies get the show shut down. But theories impromptu apology aside, I reckon Cliff Bar is about to sue you boys straight into the Stone Age. But hey, your money still spends until then. Since, you said it'd be hard to sell you on a 30-week abortion. Who's selling them? Hell, buddy. Even in those videos you cited, the Planned Parenthood officials said they weren't doing abortions past 20 or 22 weeks. Bold stance you took. Like when you called the Lamborghini lady the CEO of Planned Parenthood. Just went straight to the top, huh? And poor old simple theory. Trying to steal my job. I might be worried, but he hadn't gotten anyone's name or title correct since the Bush presidency. The woman's name was Dr. Mary Gatter, who is the medical director's council president for Planned Parenthood. In theory, you said anti-abortion activists tried to kill some doctors. Yeah, they tried all right, and they were successful 11 times in the U.S. alone. That's to say nothing of the countless incidents of bombings, property damage. Hell, 
even anthrax poisonings that anti-abortion extremists have perpetrated over the years. Oh, and that state lawmaker you referred to who said abortion wasn't okay in the case of rape or incest? I'm not sure if you're referring to former U.S. Representative Trent Franks or former U.S. Representative Todd Aiken. Both men made the case, in public no less. Since violating the Comstock Act carried a penalty of six months, not one year. And, man, I, I just, I, I can't keep going. A comedy skit to start abortion? Damn, boys, you never cease to impress me with your, uh, uh, well, whatever it is that leads a person to start an abortion episode with a comedy skit. I'll clear up my desk by Thursday. Fellas, back to you. No, man, we'll be fine. I, I apologize to Clips. I'm sure that people will be reasonable and understanding. Oh, my God, we're totally getting shut nah, down. Nah, man. Comedy is funniest at the extremes like Dave Chappelle, George Carlin. We're totally, we're totally up there with those guys, yeah, right? I, I hope so. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, no, like we said, guys, that's the thing about abortion. We've, we've all got to find a way to kind of see past those differences and find common ground because it's the largest wedge issue. Easily. And, and you know uh, who... No, no, no. We're not doing an abortion-themed Taylor Swift. We're not doing it. Well, no. you thought I was just going to come on here and make some tasteless joke? Yeah, no, that's exactly what you were getting ready to do. You, you can say her name, man. That's it. Mm-mm. Oh, Taylor Swift. This is world-class producer and fact-checker extraordinaire Beanzo of the Sense and Theory podcast. I want to thank you all for suffering through each show to hear the righteous takedowns I drop on the fellas. Please go like and review us on iTunes. It'll mean a lot to the guys, but more importantly, it'll help keep your old buddy Beanzo on the air. There's links to all our social media in the description, and feel free and tell the fellas how wrong they were at Sense and Theory Podcast at gmail.com. Tune in next week to hear Sense and Theory get all up in their feels when I burn all their hard work down again. So out.